Welcome to the Super Fantastic Nerd Hour, episode 26. We're talking Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. This is Ali Matu, and I'm joined by my fantastic co-host. H.A. Conrad. How's it going, Conrad? Going well. You know, it's a pretty rainy, thunderous day here in New York City today. I think this is the perfect weather to talk about this film today. I do, too, and I really actually enjoy these massive thunderstorms, <laughs> even though <laughs> yeah. even though my, my phone goes buzzing off at random parts of the day and tries to warn me that there is a flood, flash flood taking place. Um, it's kind of, yeah, I know. I, I was doing uh, some uh, group therapy today and everyone's phone sort of went off at the same time and there was flash flood advisory, even though there never end up being flash floods. It's just like rain. But it's nice. It cools things down. And um, yeah, it's 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 nice weather for podcasting. Um, so Conrad, we're talking Planet of the Apes. What's in our crossover today? Today in our crossover chamber, we are p- pitting apes against the Navi. Um, from Avatar. A little motion capture crossover. Right, right. And our question is, which species creates the most interesting social commentary? That's going to be a fun one. Yes. Uh, And we've got a fun top five as well today. Top five post-human stories. What does that even mean? Stay tuned, nerd legs. We will find out. (laughs) We'll figure it out together. That means Conrad had to cut a lot. I don't even know how I'm going to do my list. I have it mostly done. It may with, it may have to be tweaked. With great difficulty, that's how we're we're going to do our list. But with also great responsibility, I guess. Yes. Um, so, Conrad, we have um, we have alluded to our great love of the Planet of the Apes series in many episodes prior. But let's let's dive into it. How did you first get exposed to Planet of the Apes and, and what does the series mean to you? You know, I remember I, I honestly don't know at exactly what age, but my guess is that I think I had to be I'm gonna say like third or fourth grade or something like that. And I remember seeing it my dad was very much into sci-fi, so it may be that he rented it, um, but I feel like I I have a vague memory of somehow seeing the first film at a friend's house, and I think maybe it was like I was hanging out at a friend's house and it was on, and I just got sucked in. <laughs> so that's... <laughs> now, was it the original? The yeah, original yeah, it was, it was definitely the original with Mr. Charlton Heston, so, um, 68, yes, uh, and, you blow it up. Yes. Um, and I just remember being like, what is this? Why are there <laughs> apes? And like, whatever. Um, so I feel like my dad may have had it. And then, then suddenly I, I discovered this somewhere else. Um, but in any case, I was obsessed with this. Um, I don't know that I've seen every movie in the series. Um, or if I have, I haven't seen every single one in full. Um, but it is similar to Godzilla. It's one of those th- franchises that's always on, and it's it, to me, it's a little, bit, it's kind of comforting. Yeah. No matter yeah. how, and ha- no matter how cheesy and bad it is, and so you know, a few years ago when Tim Burton was was doing his remake, um, I got very excited. Ugh. But but before it came out, I was excited. Uh, yeah, to yeah, even, yeah. Me too. Me too. I was. Uh, I was excited to even hear about it, and then it came out. And then I was very sad. 
<laughs> well, I, I think that your experience maps on pretty well to mine. Um, I got exposed to Planet of the Apes when I was quite young. Um, I don't know how I saw the original film, but it did start with the original. And the originals are on TV. The, the original Charlton Heston, that's 1968 film, is on TV a lot. Um, and it, there was something about it that grabbed me. I think just um, there's some there's a lot of iconic scenes. There's a lot of iconic moments. There's some iconic lines um, there. Uh, the score was very memorable to me. This is an early Jerry Goldsmith score, who many of our listeners know um, as the composer to the Star Trek, the motion picture and um, has done uh, the Star Trek first context score. So um, there's a lot of things about it that was just very memorable to me. And of course, spoiler alert, the finale just really hit me hard i was like what that's earth this is wait what happened to the humans wait wait the humans destroyed themselves wait wait okay oh my god oh my oh oh man (laughs) and it it kind of all the social commentary and it whatever it was it was firing the same neurons that fired for me with x-men oh you know what that's i I felt the same way. Like, it was this really interesting story, and it was sort of weird that they were apes, but there was just this really... It it was one of those things um, that just made you think, and really made you think about different issues that, you know, it just basically put it into this very stark (laughs) reality when you were watching it, and, and you didn't really... I mean, because let's face it, the Planet of the Apes, the makeup, it's kind of like weird, even though it's super cool. <laughs> it, it is a weird thing to watch and to be really into, but I was so into it. I was totally into it. And I, uh, you know, it, um, it, my brother and I, after discovering the first film, we went to Blockbuster Video. For those of you who are not aware, um, Blockbuster Video is a place where you go to and you get these things called VHS tapes that you would put into a VCR and then you could watch a movie before you could do video on demand. Um, and so we we rented the entire film series. And up, in, up into that point, there were five films. Yep, five films. And so we watched all of them and they all kind of vary in terms of quality, but I loved um the second one was just weird for me. It's like the superhumans who are um worshipping this nuclear warhead and Charlton Heston sort of blows up the planet. Um and then I really like the third one which is Escape from the Planet of the Apes where um uh Zira is it Zira and her husband travel back in time with their baby Caesar into like present day Earth? And that was a really cool film. It was there was a lot of humor in it, but it played on on some of those ideas of Planet of the Apes of of man's inhumanity to to animal and to man. And it played on all of that kind of stuff really well. Um it also had Ricardo Montalban in it, I believe, which was really cool. And then there was the fourth one, which I'm forgetting the name of it. I think it was uh, Conquest. There's Battle for the Planet of the Apes and Conquest. I forget which one is which. But the fourth one kind of has a lot of the same ideas as Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And then there was the fifth one, which wasn't that good. But then Tim Burton's remake came around. And this is... 
You know, we got to remember this is 2000. Tim Burton is most well known at this point for doing some great Batman films, for doing um, Edward Scissorhands, um, has, has done some really imaginative work. And we all thought we were going to get a really interesting reboot. And then, Conrad, what what was that film? I don't even know. Um, I also wanted to, to point out, did you ever watch any of the TV series? Yes. Or did you ever see the the reruns? Because there's like a ton in there. And that was always, I mean, I think that's part of why it always felt like there was some sort of Planet of the Apes things on. Because <laughs> th- those would totally. just be, those would be, it felt like maybe Sci-Fi Channel had them on. I, I, I They did. They did. Back when their logo was like a Saturn and it was Sci-Fi, not S-Y-F-Y. Sci-Fi. Yeah, 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 totally. Well, and we should also mention that the whole series is based on a book. Mm-hmm. And now, have you ever read the the original French novel? Maybe it's not in its French, but have you ever read the 1963 book? I have not. So. No, and I haven't it, either. Actually, in prepping for this, I was, I was thinking that I should be reading this, and then I didn't, but it's now downloaded to my Kindle, so I'll probably read it by tomorrow. Oh, well, give us an update on the future <laughs> Nerd Hour episode. Um, we should also uh, uh, mention, oh, well, before we get to the new one. So I think things really, there, there's something about this franchise that um, it perpetuated a lot in the 60s, in the 70s. There's a lot of sequels. There's a TV show, as you talked about. There's comics. There's, there's games. Oh, there's yeah. Like tons of stuff. I, I mean... And I, you know, I did not have one, but I know that a friend of mine had a Planet of the Apes lunchbox, <laughs> but like a super cool one, not, yeah. not like the plastic ones that were kind of, you the know, metal, one of those metal yeah, ones. Yeah, it was a metal yeah, one. Yeah, the metal ones are really cool. Um, I was actually trying to find, um, cause I remembered the, the lunchbox really clearly. Um, and I was trying to find like some like photo of it hoping that like someone had put it up there Um, and i i oh and i just found it so nice well we should put that in the show notes like with the thermos and everything yeah i remember those those are super cool i was always jealous of the kids who had those i think i had a gi joe but i had a gi joe plastic one it was not not a metal one so um, before we get to the tim burton one what do you think it was that worked with the series? What do you think the series is all about? And then we'll get into why Tim Burton's didn't do that thing. What, what's the existential quality of, of Planet of the Apes film? Well, I mean, I think that the original film was quite there. there was, it wasn't very subtle about it, but it was very much dealing with ideas of otherness and racism and think about it was came out in 1968. So they were using this basically as a social commentary and there was, it was really a powerful message too, to see how Charlton Heston was being treated by them, how the other humans were being treated by the apes and how the apes just, um, you know, didn't believe that humans were even intelligent Mm -hmm. and there was just this so so racism and slavery were very big aspects so and as i said they had a very i mean and i'm 
I can't comment because I haven't read the book, but there there was a very um, detailed universe that was in place. So there were different types of apes that made up different parts of the society. They had different costuming. They had different duties that they did. It was a very well-formed society that yeah. was similar, but not quite like human society. Yeah. So I, you know, and I think there were so many things about Tim Burton's that fell short. And honestly, I have not watched it since the, the first time that I saw it. Did you rewatch it? Oh God, no, no. I couldn't make I myself, never do, I couldn't my, make I, myself I, do it. Um, I can't do it. I did watch the honest trailer for it. It was great. Um, in the same week leading up to Dawn of the Planet of Apes, um, Screen Junkies and CinemaSins both did an episode on Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. Um, so honest trailers, there's an honest trailer of it and there's a CinemaSin of it and they just break the movie down and it's hilarious. Um, I recommend watching those and not putting yourself through the whole misery of watching the Tim Burton one. Um, Tor did a good write-up of the whole Planet of the Apes franchise. And um, they kind of get into this. Uh, The author of the post, will put this in the show notes, but he says, um, why does a Tim Burton one suck? Well, it misses a point. The thing that's wonderful about Planet of the Apes, the whole damn dirty, wonderful conceit, plays with how close the flip could be between civilized and being uncivilized. In Tim Burton's versions, the humans are just slaves of the apes, even though they can talk and act normal. There's no exploration of how and why the apes really see them any differently. It's just sort of uh, posited that the apes are a-holes and the humans are the good guys. A good apes movie doesn't paint things in black and white. It's sort of, it's the graying between human and apes where the whole stories get super interesting. And I think that's, that was the thing about Tim Burton's version is it, it, it lacked any of the intellectual, um, um, uh, ideas of the original movie. Well, um, yeah. And the writing was shockingly bad. <laughs> the writing was bad. And is it just me or the, do the effects and makeup look like they haven't really advanced much since the well, 60s? They looked worse if that's <laughs> yeah, possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, and I remember, and this is like terrible, but I remember watching, you know, an interview with Helena Bonham Carter and then watching this film and just being appalled. By... Is she in it? Yes. Who does she play? She's Dr. Uh, Zira, I think. Oh, my gosh. See, that's the thing is I can't really remember. The only thing I remember about the film is really the ending. And so, um, again, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it. But if you haven't, please don't do that to yourself. Um, the ending has uh, Marky Mark returning to present day and um, arriving at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. And the Lincoln Memorial is actually an ape. It's not a human. And there's um, ape security guards that that. Um, that come and apprehend him. That's the that's Tim Burton. I think totally missing what made the original so amazing. The original isn't really about the shocking ending. Although there's a great scene in a recent episode of Mad Men where you see Don Draper going to see this film and trying to make sense of it and make sense of the ending, um, which is really cool to see it in the context of history and what it must have been like to see this to see the ending. But the original is not great because of its ending. The ending is 
good, but it's great because of these ideas of what you're saying about our in- inhumanity to each other, about slavery. And some of the recent ones do a great job about um, breaking down our inhumanity to animals and and uh, ideas of what we can do, what we can rationalize because we see something as an animal is different from us. Tim Burton's really didn't explore any of those ideas. Instead, it tried to go for this trick kind of ending. Right. Uh, and that that was very invalidating to me as a fan of the series. Yes. Um, Helena Bonham Carter played a character called Ari, not Dr. Zero, but it was a similar idea. Well, so we had this sort of we had the dark ages of the Planet of the Apes movies in uh, the 2000s where nothing was really made. And then we had 2011's Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Now, was it just me or did you also expect nothing from this version? No, I I expected absolutely nothing. And of course, I went to see it. Um, Of course, that's what we do here um, at the Super Index and Nerd Hour. Yes, um, but I went to see it. You make a movie, we will see it. (laughs) Um, I went to see this with my friend Aaron. And, you know, he is one of my nerdy movie companions. And he generally goes to see movies with me that Bill won't go to see. (laughs) Um, And Bill definitely did not want to see this particular film. And so we went and I remember sitting down and I I had just been burned by the Burton uh, version. So I was sort of like, all right. The wound was still healing. The wound was, (laughs) it was not even healing. I just was like, oh, I don't even know what to expect, but okay. And I was, I was actually really shocked. Um, I did feel that, that some of the CGI was not quite like there was, there was definitely some uncanny Valley esque type moments where, um, you know, and maybe this is because apes do look somewhat human, um, and they have a lot of those characteristics. So when they look off, there's that, that, that weird feeling, um, so there were there were some moments in the film where I was just like, uh, the CGI went a little overboard there. But overall, I was very impressed. Yeah, you know, I, I um, like you, it was a friend of mine who kind of convinced me to see it, my friend Diana, um, who that year convinced me to see Rise of the Planet of the Apes as well as X-Men First Class. So, Diana... Thank you for introducing me to two awesome movies. Um, But I was so glad that I saw it. I expected uh, not much of anything. Didn't realize um, that they were getting some, you know, Andy Serkis was was playing Caesar. I had no idea until I saw the credits. But, uh, um, you know, I I had less problems with the CGI as I did with (laughs) the human characters. I thought every human character was disposable and I thought the science was stupid. But that being said... Well, I the science really loved the, it. the science was stupid, but you know John Lithgow was very good. Um, James Franco, even though the science was stupid, the aspects with the treatment of the animals in the in the um, the lab facility, and then in the other um, the ape ape uh, I don't know what they called it uh, the the. Not the quarantine place, but where they take Caesar with the, the encampment. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. there were some, despite some of those moments with the signs. I agree with you because part of me was just like, okay, if you're going to do a contagion film, make it a little bit more believable. Yeah, and some of it felt very ham fisted. Um, but it was still 
plausible. And then, but the really great thing was the interaction with the apes. And when the apes were on screen, it was really an amazing film. Yeah, that part worked. You know, I, I think even the John um, John Lithgow, uh, you know, I think him and James Franco, their characters worked in the emotional sense. I think the emotional scenes and their relationship to each other and James Franco's relationship to Caesar, those emotional moments worked. But otherwise, when the humans were talking to each other, I, I just kind of heard walk, wonk, walk, wonk. And one of the worst offenders of this was um, Tom Felton's character, who we all know as, uh, what's his name from the Harry Potter series? Um, Draco Malfoy. As, as Malfoy, yeah, exactly. You know, there was, uh, there was a few turns where he said, get your paws off me you damn dirty ape right um and that's obviously a reference to the original and there were there was nice moments like that but his character was just so pure evil i thought that that kind of got away from some of the ideas of the ape series um and are, are you saying that he was a little bit too much of a mustache twirl twirler <laughs> he was he was yes. it's like what and, and that's fine you can have characters like this in these societies and we we see a few characters like that in dawn but i didn't think his character was really fleshed out as I felt like for most of the humans there. Um, however, all of that being said, the film really worked for me and it got at some of these ideas between what is human and what is animal. What's the, this is one area where I think it really contributed to the larger franchise. What's, what are the ethics of laboratory mm -hmm. testing? What, it, what are the ethics of, um, of our zoos, of enclosing animals? And then it, you know, you could even argue it gets to these ideas of um the right to revolution when you are violently repressed uh, have you ever been to the bronx zoo uh the bronx zoo i have not i've been to the super sad and small um uh central park zoo mm. um it's weird because you know i remember going and really loving the zoo as a kid and then recently we went well, recently, I guess maybe a year or two ago, we went to the Bronx Zoo with some friends of ours. And it was the first time I had been back since I was a kid. And I had this really, this, quite honestly, this feeling of sadness um, walking through it. And very specifically, when you go to the gorilla enclosure um, and you're sitting there and you're observing the gorillas and it, to me, it just feels so wrong. <laughs> Um, yeah. I know, I know there's a lot of people that say the zoos are what helps people have, um, see these animals they wouldn't otherwise be able to see. And also they will want to help save them and protect them. And it brings awareness, but I will tell you what, and, and, you know, we're talking, the Bronx Zoo is a very nice zoo. So, yeah. and just looking at the enclosure, it felt like wrong to even be looking at them. Do you know what I mean? Well, like, yeah, it, I, I felt that way when I went to the uh, San Diego Zoo. And um, yeah, one of the things that I, one of those quotes that is just burned in my mind is from Stephen Jay Gould, who has written a lot about evolution and, and, and all of that. And I think it's from his Bully for Brontosaurus. And um, I'm paraphrasing him here, but he said something to the effect of, we rationalize um, experimenting and testing on animals because we, um, we say that they're so different from us. However, we do this testing and experimentation because of how similar they are to us. Mm -hmm. 
how do we negotiate that? And I, I, I think it's a, it's a hard thing to deal with. Um, part of a zoo is to study. Part of a zoo is to help and understand. But there is this also part of it that is for entertainment. There's part of it that is also um, contrary to the way these animals, uh, these living creatures, these beings naturally live. Um, and this gets back to the idea of the original plan of the apes is would we want to be in that type of setting? Would we want to be caged for the enjoyment of another animal? Well, and then there's also the question, I, I, I mean, yes, I, talking about all animals and, and that is that is a huge issue. But um, apes specifically are so they really they're related to us so absolutely it's it's very weird seeing that and you know maybe i was thinking a little bit of planet of the apes when when i was feeling so upset in the gorilla enclosure <laughs> but uh, how can um, you not yeah. but you know what i had a similar feeling um when um i forget like i was down in florida and we were trying to kill time and we went to SeaWorld and I didn't really think that much about it. It was just one of those those things um that, you know, we'd done Disney and we had been we were we were we, we were down there waiting for the shuttle launch and it had been delayed the la one of the last ones and yeah. it was awesome, but you know, we had a few days to kill. And we went to SeaWorld and it, I had the same feeling and I just felt like it was just these huge majestic creatures that are obviously intelligent and we're kind of locking them up and making yeah. them beg for snacks. And it just felt, it just feels ick to me. Um, so I have a very different feeling as an adult than I did as a kid about yeah. it. Um, and then I also saw um, the movie Blackfish, which is... I was just going to raise that, yeah. Uh, I mean, this, this is such an, um, a controversial issue and it's it's very much in in the the zeitgeist right now about the um the treatments of uh, uh captive killer whales uh, i haven't seen blackfish but um i'm sure it is uh, a difficult thing to watch it's difficult but it really puts a lot of things into perspective um yeah. but but all of that aside i think that that this is why planet of the apes franchise has has legs is that it is it is bringing forth these really hard to for for I think it is hard to absorb some of this when it's when you're watching a human to human film. Yeah. Yeah. Um I think that there's a lot of great films out there about racism and slavery and um for example even in this past year's um Oscar category that we talked about. Are you um, thinking about 12 years of slavery? Yes, I yeah, am. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, but, it, but at the time, I mean, especially in 1968 when this came out, I don't think it was quite as easy to talk about all of this. Exactly. And this is why this series is so near and dear to my heart. And, you know, um, putting Planet of the Apes, X-Men and Star Trek into the same camp of um, stories that ha offer a reflection on what it means to be human and a reflection on humanity and the things that we do, presenting them in a way in which we can have these discussions. Again, back in the 60s, that these discussions were happening against the backdrop of civil war. You couldn't, you couldn't have a feature film out 
like this if it had humans to humans. You couldn't do that in Star Trek. Star Trek, um, the reason why it worked, it was in the future and it was talking about these themes, but it's humans versus Klingons, humans versus Romulans. And we see the same thing with X-Men, with mutants and humans. This is the great power of science fiction. It's ability to provide the social commentary and not predicting what's happening in the future, but talking about the things that are happening right now. The Planet of the Apes, along with X-Men and Star Trek, had a huge influence on my values and what um, the way I see the world. So you bet this this franchise is important to me and it uh, definitely i think a lot of people it, it's has struck a chord with 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 a ton of people so conrad we know based on this the longest intro we've ever had to a film review in super fantastic nerd hour history that this is a franchise very near and dear to our hearts we liked the reboot rise of the planet apes and some might say it's more of a prequel than a reboot going into dawn of the planet of the apes highly anticipated film on our top three most anticipated of the summer what did you think my friend i really enjoyed this i really thought that this was a beautifully made film i actually thought it was much more successful than um than rise of the planet of the apes in some ways, um, I definitely it it was incredible to me. I thought that the CGI looked even like more realistic. It was very beautiful. Um, there were some scenes where you had the apes, like the wind was blowing through their hair, um, and you know they had some of that in in, in uh, Rise and but in Dawn it was just incredible. And there was a lot of scenes with just the apes. Yes. Um, where and you don't really you're and on and actually similar similar to, to uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, you kind of just want the humans to get off screen. <laughs> Absolutely. You're you're yeah, kind yeah. of just like, gosh, why are the humans back again? Because they are, I think, similar. Unfortunately, to to Rise, the humans are the least interesting part of this film to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, even though you need them, obviously, to have the conflict. Um, but. It's it's a beautifully made film, um, I, you know. Andy Circus, hats off to him for yeah. his performance here. Um, although I know that that may stir up some controversy, um, we'll, we'll we'll get into that. We'll get into that. But I will also say that I had a fantastic experience watching this because I watched this in Austin, Texas, at the Alamo Draft House, um, right in downtown. Austin, the Ritz. It's on um, East 6th Street down there. And my ticket was $9. What? <laughs> yeah. What? And, you know, they have the food. You can get a beer. Um, they have really incredible trailers that they put together. Like, it's really a movie nerd's dream. Um, and movie nerds obviously run this franchise. So... I um, saw this film in New York City for $15 in 2D, which I wanted, which thank goodness is out in 2D, but 15 bucks, no no frills, no nothing. And there was a couple behind me who kept commenting throughout the film. One of their comments was quite funny, where they were like, this is a lot like Lion King. And I was like, okay, that's actually kind of funny. There was, uh, when we get into our, our discussion, and we should say we're going to get into spoilers about the film. So yeah. please be careful. Spoiler alert. Go watch the movie. 
we both liked it. But um, that sounds like you had a super nerdy experience watching oh, the film. I did, and you know what? It, that's to me, that's what you what you should be doing when you go to the movies. Like it should be an event like that, and people should be respectful. And you're not allowed to text or talk in that theater, or they throw you out. And oh, cool. Um, they give you fair warning. And everybody adheres to it. And it's really a fantastic movie watching experience. I cannot wait for the Alamo Draft House to open in Brooklyn. Um, I am sure the tickets will be much more than $9 in New York. <laughs> and I'm sure the food will be too. But you know what? I will happily pay it. Um, it was it was great. And, you know, they also have a movie guide every month that they put out. And they do different, um, they do different um, film series. Um, they were doing... A mystery Tom Cruise film series where like oh that's fun you show or you up, don't know what it's going to be right and it, they're going to do oh, cool. a marathon of three Tom Cruise films the only the only thing that connects them is that he runs in every one <laughs> which you know so, every Tom Cruise film yeah so anyway but so that and it was it was so it was such a great experience so I think that that also helped me enjoy this a lot more but. Well, I didn't have as as much of a nerdy experience watching the film as you did, yet I also really, really enjoyed the film. Um, I think you you said the word beautiful, which really does capture many elements of the film. Um, you're right. The texture and the detail of the CGI and the motion capture was, um, was a big leap forward from the previous film. The movie opens on this very beautiful scene where they're hunting this bear, and um, you—, you you see um you see their society and culture unfold from there and it just i wanted to spend so much in movie there in um in this area north of san francisco just sort of where the apes are living it's it's sort of like an ewok village for the apes <laughs> it kind of is and you know there's a lot of you know there's, with a little kashuk thrown in there as well yeah and planet and you know they also they have references and they have nice little references inserted throughout like these different little visual things and you see um there's definitely references to the future planet of the apes or the original that you the 68 version and um you know with like Maurice, the orangutan is still hanging out and he's definitely the scholar. So that's, you know, so ape there's shall not kill ape, ape shall not kill ape and all of that. Um, so there's a lot of fun stuff like that going on. They really just the detail I thought was just beautiful. There's and there's also, you know, there there's this big sort of the main um, dwelling where Caesar lives with his wife Um is it's such a tree of life it's lush. reference it's, 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 it really is i mean it's like i was like oh look a tree of life <laughs> <laughs> well you conrad you have mentioned a lot you mentioned maurice you mentioned caesar you've mentioned a lot of the the big apes here but you haven't mentioned my favorite character in this film koba uh, well yeah. see he he I was I was working up to it because he <laughs> he is definitely one of my favorite characters so, Andrew Serkis needs to get credit for for Caesar. Um, actor Toby Kebbell, um, he needs to get a lot of credit for this character of Koba. Now, Koba was a character we saw in Rise of the Planet Apes. He's a character who is tortured, experimented on humans, and he's been left scarred. And now we see this character go through a major arc in this story, um, and his character 
just um you know there's there's two words that just i could not get out of my head after seeing this film it's when they're having a conversation and caesar says something to the effect of we need to let the humans do their work and koba goes human work human work and he points to his scar human work he points to his, his eye and he points to all these parts of the bodies and then he, a, a part of his body who's been damaged by the by the humans and i just my heart sank in that moment um and i thought that was so much of planet of the apes in a nutshell right there such a beautiful scene um the way koba and his relationship with caesar is played out people have been linking this to shakespeare caesar they've been linking it to analogies with the french revolution even ideas about abraham lincoln and civil war um animal farm by george orwell they're really linking it to not only some of the sci-fi classics but some of the literary and historical um classics and that that is so cool that this film is being seen um, at a much higher level than most other blockbuster films of the summer season. Uh, yeah. I can't <laughs> argue with you there. <laughs> I mean, it's... Um, I was just thinking about Koba more. That's all. Well, do you remember that scene where Koba commandeers a tank? Well, there's so many scenes. I mean, there's definitely, like... I feel like there he was kind of like... It, it was like scenes out of Scarface oh, when yeah. he's like wielding. And I also, and I also was going to mention um, in relation to, to Koba and, and the apes in general, this is a very anti-gun movie. Mm. That is a huge theme that is going, um, that is hits you over the head with it. I, I did not pick up on that i mean this is really and, i i mean i just noticed it and i mean yes it's a tool of humans and maybe that's what they're saying but to me it is a very anti-gun movie because nothing everything negative happens the minute guns are involved well you're right and i mean one of the things about uh you know this is a hot topic issue too but one of the things about gun violence is we typically we get into trouble when we're in highly emotional states and we use weapons that have uh lethality um it's easy to make a quick decision in the heat of the moment when you're emotional and that quick decision is going to have um everlasting repercussions that's exactly where the plot of the film um, um, goes. Uh, uh, that's where the plot of the film gets started, and we see Caesar striving for peace. And you know, I can name a ton of the ape characters. I can't name any of the human characters. But you have the main <laughs> human character who is also striving for peace. Malcolm. Malcolm. There we go. Um, and their struggle to try to con- have their species connect with each other, while you have these other, um. Uh, individuals, whether it's Koba or the other disposable human who uh, Gary Oldman's character and the other guy who doesn't Dreyfus. like Dreyfus. Thank you. Thank you, Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, we see that that division and the tension there. And you're right. It all does start from this one moment of uh, of gun violence. Um, uh, it's it's all in the ape characters. I think that's where this film works. And I think something that you and I were both agreeing on here is it sounds like the humans are really, um, they're just not as developed. 
well, they're not. And then there's another piece that that um, bothered me with in terms of the the cast of characters. And before, I, usually, I try to stay away from spoilers, and I I was definitely trying to for this film because there were so many of them out there. Um, but I did see an interview with Judy Greer talking about her experience working on on this film, and I was excited because she does these sort of quirky, weird characters and. She, I was like, oh, that's fantastic that she's in this, and I'm psyched. I can't wait to see it, like, because she was playing an ape. Yep. And then I saw the film, and I was like, huh, like that, because <laughs> her role in it, she plays Caesar's mate, and she really doesn't have that big of a role. Um, yeah, she's she she's kind of this sort of uh, look. Caesar has a family, and oh, look, he has children. He, you know, he has things that he wants to protect, but. The, the female apes were not active within this, and they are active in the original film. And yeah. um, and then Carrie Russell's character is the only other real female within it, and she's a human. And, and I mean, come on, we know Carrie Russell is capable of being awesome. Yeah. And I just felt like it was kind of like a throwaway character here. I, I don't... I got, it, I, the, the lack of fleshed out multiple female characters on both the sides of the apes as well as the sides of the humans really took away from um, how well developed the societies were in the film Um, especially the ape society which was so fleshed out in so many ways we get to see the school we get to see the debates we get to see the culture the hierarchy how this all works but we don't get to see much from the females slate um We, we get to see apes riding on horseback yeah, which always terrifies me. Just that, me that too. Image. And I was talking about that with uh, my friend who went to see the film with me, my friend Brooke, and she kept laughing at me because every time the apes would get on horseback, it felt like they got more and more evil on horseback somehow. I don't know. Yeah. It just was weird. It's, it's that imagery. I mean, no other animal on this planet uses horseback uses horses for a mode of transportation as we do to see apes doing that it's very very jarring well and it also brings that whole question is like what are we doing yeah you know i know i know (laughs) but you know getting back to this gender issue slate nicely summarized this uh where they said females in the story whether human or ape exist mainly to nurture give birth and look pretty in peril it feels like a real step back to see carrie russell who as the undercover russian super spy of the americans seems tough enough to pose a one woman threat to western democracy reduced to dispensing encouraging hugs and makeshift bandages and i want to extend on what you said too um the original planet of the apes the 1960s film has zero who which is a very fleshed out female doctor high ranking member of this society well and she's also one of the characters by which they're exploring some of the issues like she's experimenting on humans and feels weird about it you know like yes. like there's all this stuff going on um, and she is one of the major drivers of the plot and the storyline. Yeah. And so it's, it, it was surprising to me that it was as, uh, as light on the, on the female characters in development here. Yeah. And um, I gotta, I gotta say in terms of light on characters too, um, Carrie Russell, I think the, the, uh, two of the worst offenders here, Carrie Russell and Gary Ullman's character, um, just, they didn't really seem to have much motivation, much of an art 
arc to their character. It just uh, the human element was 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 pretty bad, and the female element was worse. Um, but let's just talk about what's really important right now, which is this is really the Caesar and Copa show. Absolutely, absolutely, it is. Um, it's uh, uh, some might say Caesar and Brutus show. <laughs> mm. So um, this this is a film that's really about these two characters. It's about their journey. It's about um, I, I think it's about seeing Caesar, who was a um, kind of thrust into a position of leadership in the last film, and now it's him dealing with the consequences of this, being in a position that he never asked to be in. But it, it's a position that he was in some ways destined to be in. He has empathy for humans. He has empathy for for his own species he wants peace he so desperately wants peace and Um, he wants peace but it's not that he trusts the humans i mean i think he's had a better experience but there there's a moment when the humans and the apes run into each other in in um um in the woods yeah yeah um mirror woods and you know, the humans didn't realize what was going on up there. And then they're, you know, they have a bunch of apes that can talk <laughs> and they're terrified because who wouldn't be? And so the apes go to see, to basically tell them to, to stay away. Um, and then they come back because they really need the power source, which is on, they need to, to fix the dam, which in the power station, which is on the apes territory. And, um, you know, basically, Koba is very distrusting of this and doesn't want them to come on their land and do anything because of his experiences. And I would say probably most of the apes have had these negative experiences. And Caesar, it's not that he wants to help the humans. It's that he knows that they're not going to give up. And, yeah. he, and he doesn't want his family to die. So he chooses this as opposed to um, going all out battle and letting letting his brethren die because... Sanctity of life is very important to him. It's the whole idea of uh, do we preemptively strike? Right. Um, and, and I think that what's cool about that is we, set, we see these conversations unfold. And, you know, the apes aren't quite able to uh, communicate as well as humans. It seems like it's a bit of a, a struggle or it's difficult for them to speak. But we do see them use a lot of sign language. And in very key moments, we see them use speech, which is, which is really cool. And I was hoping... On every word, um, whether it was signed or whether it was spoken, and we see some of these debates, and I think that's where we see some of the social commentary about uh, of this film, some of the ideas of um, of communication between mm-hmm. different groups, um, about finding empathy, about. Um, you know, conflict as a result when you have these competing goals, and how some of those goals. Goals and the conflict tends to be about resources and how resources are power. I think there's so there's so much that so much about conflict and peace and um, and negotiations that this film is really talking about, and it's getting to some. It's it's definitely adding to the plan of the apes uh, mythology in a in a valuable way. Yeah. I I really enjoyed this film. I'm excited to see the next in the series. 
Well, before we get to that, let me ask you about um, I was I was quite surprised that AV Club AV Club had a relatively somewhat negative review of the film. And one of the things that they talked about is it's hard to invest in a story where you know exactly where it's going to go. And they say that we know this is going to we're heading towards a war and um, part of the film might feel uh, might feel uh, predictable. So if you've seen Dances with Wolves or if you've seen Avatar, <laughs> which we'll get into, it follows a bit of that same formula. Uh, yeah. Formula. Did you find the film to be predictable or was it hard for you to care because the film um, seems to be really moving towards an all out war? Well, it's moving towards an all out war, but um, what I kept thinking, and I know this is what you're not supposed to do because maybe they will take this someplace else. I don't know, but the ape society that we were introduced to in the original film is, is, looking an awful lot like what Koba's ideas are. So <laughs> I have a feeling that Koba is either not dead or other people are going to, to raise that, that flag. Um, it's not really a Caesar minded society. So I don't, I would like to see what they're going to do with that. I, I don't know. It feels like there's going to be some twist to me. You think Utopia is, is over for the apes? I think it's over, but I also think, it, I don't know. It, I'm still interested to see what happens. They had a good 10 years. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily agree with AV Club here. Um, I think in some ways it might have been predictable, but that's not what's interesting to me. Um, again, like this story has been done, but the reason why it works for me is we care about these characters. And it's reinventing some of these ideas in, in, a, in a more modern uh, way of telling that story. And, and that for me always, always works if you can do that. I don't necessarily think... I think we're headed towards an all-out war here. I think this new ape storyline um, really likes living in the gray. And there was some symmetry here we, where we had proponents for peace and and hawks on both sides. We had hawks and doves on both sides. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to continue to play out in the next one. Um, it is called Planet of the Apes. <laughs> However... Um, this is a Planet of the Apes series in which the humans are still there, still. Well, and, and there's always that feeling when you were watching um, the original film and some of the other films in the in the series, like, how did they get here? You know, like you, you kind of you want to see that it's yeah. it's you it's like X Men First Class. You want to see the origin story. Yeah, we know that Matt Reeves, the director of this one, he signed on to make a third um, and to co-write it. Um, what do you think that one's going to be about? I don't know, but I mean, I again, I, I feel like Koba can't. I, I feel like Koba's not dead. Yeah, and while there was no uh, no post credit scene, no stinger at the end, if you wait until the very last moments, you hear some ape sounds, which some people believe is a little. Uh, a little nod to the idea that Koba might still be alive, but who knows? Um, but we would be we would be remiss if we were not talking about this controversy about mm. motion capture. Yeah. Now people have talked about how um, Andy Serkis's performances 
beginning with Gollum, continuing with King Kong, and now um, Caesar, really point towards motion captures, um, maturity. And uh, there's been a lot of controversy about why motion capture acting hasn't been nominated for Academy Award. We've talked about some of that in, in, in our Academy Award episode. Now there's more controversy. So, Conrad, have you heard about the digital makeup controversy that's come about? I had not, but you you told me about it, so I did a little bit of research. Um, yeah, it's so, it's. Hmm. It's interesting. So Andy Serkis made a comment kind of talking about this controversy that motion capture isn't necessarily given the same credit as non-motion capture at, um, acting. And he, he said motion cap- capture acting is, is like digital makeup. That created a little bit of a backlash, specifically with animators. Um, Randall William Cook, who's a director of animation on Lord of the Rings, um, felt like he needed to to respond here. And he said, let me state that Andy really should be considered the principal author of Gollum's performance, but there is a hell of a difference between a principal author and a sole author. The animators who help shape Gollum's performance are actors of a very special type, working to very high level of achievement. I can't speak to recent performances in Andy's performance capture career, but the animators in Lord of the Rings were certainly not digital makeup artists, and nobody has any business saying that they were. Circus responded and said, my livelihood depends on the art of animators. Um, However, he says that the animator's role is to, quote, honor the performance given on the set to the nth degree. So, (laughs) a little bit of controversy. It is controversy, but then uh, Matt Reeves basically came to Andy's defense. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, he agrees that it's a collaboration and he's not in any way downplaying the animators because he's saying they they are the ones that create that look. But he is saying that, um, you know... um, that in order to create Caesar, you have to have Andy Circus, Yeah. And you have yeah. to have that performance. And he says, and the performance is 100% Andy. Yeah. So, you know, he's, 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 he is basically saying he has respect and he's not in any way trying to say one is better than the other, but, and it is a collaboration, but I think he's also giving kudos to, to Andy Circus. For the performance that he does. And I mean, you have to, his performance as a golem, come on, like yeah. that, you would not have that without Andy Circus. And so I, I understand where they're coming from and why they're upset. And I don't think he was, I, I think his comments were taken. Probably out of context a little bit. Not out of context, but I, and I can also understand the defensive nature of that um, because he does not exist without them either so um and we can also see a future as the technology continues to develop that um the animator's role here might um 
might be reduced to a degree. It's it's an interesting time. I don't know if there's a right answer here beyond that it's a collaboration. Right. And, <laughs> and, you know, it gets to some of these ideas about who creates a character and now the idea of who creates a performance. And it's it's never just the actor. It's film is a very collaborative art form. And there are many individuals who are responsible for the final product. Um, I, I think oftentimes it's the actors and the director that get the credit. But um, it's there's a wealth of artists who uh, who are involved. There's a lot of credit to be to be passed around um, for these performances. So we'll see. You know, but I you know what I want to see is of course I want to see a, a, a nomination here for Andy Serkis. Um, I also want to see a nomination here for our friend uh, uh, Toby uh, Kebble who plays Koba. I think that performance just really in some ways um, hit me harder than um, than Caesar's. Well, I mean, Koba was, was really the, uh, he was the person driving or the ape rather driving a lot of the, (laughs) a lot of the really hard questions here. And you have this, you have this feeling for Koba because you have this, I had an enormous amount of sympathy. He has one eye that's, that's gone. He's very scarred. All of the mutilations that have occurred to him have been because of humans. And so you don't really blame him for not trusting them. And in fact, the first encounter that they've had with him in a decade one of them shoots one of the younger apes, um, really just because he's scared, but does it really matter? The first yeah. interaction they have causes injury to one of their one of their clan. Um, and he doesn't trust them, so he goes on a reconnaissance mission and finds that they're stockpiling weapons. And some of the most brilliant pieces of his performance, because he's super he's a super weird looking ape. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he kind of goes in like all ninja style with like some of his ape soldiers. <laughs> I, lo- I love that. And scene. they're just like they're like kind of checking things out. And and some of the humans that are in charge of the weapons are just hanging out there and they have no idea that the apes are like hanging right from the ceiling. Um, yeah. And but then Koba gets caught. He gets caught. And what he does is he plays ape. Yes. Yes. And it's but- so genius. Like. He's so conniving and... He can manipulate. Yeah. This This is a guy who has some social intelligence. He knows how to manipulate other people. He manipulates not only humans, but he also manipulates the apes into believing that the humans um, shot Caesar. And, and all the whole time, we understand his motivation. Um, really fantastic villain here. Um, uh, a great film, despite its shortcomings of having uh, really forgettable humans for the most part. I, I really enjoyed the film. Um, looking back at it, you know, this was in our top three most anticipated. Um, is it in your top three of the summer so far? So far, but it did. I I guess my expectations were very high and I do think it was very beautiful. I don't. And honestly, even if you're not into this storyline, I think most people would enjoy this film. Well, most people who are into apes, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is a beautiful film, and if you and if you want to to see some of the most amazing animation and, and the the motion capture effects, this is it. Um, and it's you know it doesn't feel fake. It's it's very the lighting that they use, and also I want to talk about the musical score. Oh, Michael Giacchino's score. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
He's he's one of my favorite composers. Um, he had a fantastic score to Lost, to uh, the Star Trek reboot. Um, I've lo- I loved his score for Up. And one of my favorite things about Michael Giacchino is um, he always has uh, kind of funny, punny uh, uh, track titles. And so some of his titles on this score, uh, Level Plaguing Field, Look Who's Stalking, the Great Ape Processional, Past Their Primates, Close <laughs> Encounters of the Furred Kind. Nice. Uh, the, every track listing is a pun. Oh, Michael Giacchino, I, I love you. Can Keep doing what you're doing. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's in, it's in my top summer movies, but I have a feeling it may get knocked out. Well, it's in my top three. I I think I might, I might be liking this film a little bit more than you are. I think looking back so far, um, X-Men is my number one. Dawn of the Planet Apes is two. Edge of Tomorrow is probably three. Um, I, I, oh no, I like it and I'm not, I'm not taking away. I guess what I'm saying is that I'm anticipating that perhaps Guardians of the Galaxy (laughs) might, might rumble things up a little bit. I think if if all goes well, Guardians is going to knock out Edge of Tomorrow for my top three. But I think this is a smart film with ideas, which was so refreshing um, for a summer movie blockbuster season. So on the topic of big blockbuster movies, are you ready to venture into the infinite crossover chamber? You blow it up, you... Bastards. (laughs) (laughs) Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering what you were going to do. Oh, man. Well, if you're talking apes, you got to go with Charlton Heston. Yes. Um, all right. So what's our question today? And who are we crossing over uh, today, Conrad? Um, we are crossing over apes from the Planet of the Apes franchise and specifically uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes with the Navi from Avatar. So, um, lots of interesting parallels here. Um, Avatar r- uh, really took motion capture to the next level. Prior to that, we had Gollum. Um, and before that, we had some Jar Jar Binks. Misa people hate that character. Uh, <laughs> um, just kidding. Brian... If you're listening to the podcast, I, I I love your explanation for why you like Jar Jar. So thank you for that. Um, but getting back to this. So um, they're both really take motion capture to the next level. So there's the technological parallels here. There's also the parallels of um, what these characters represent. And our question today is really is about um, which species here creates the most interesting social commentary, raises the most interesting issues, and is the best kind of reflection on humanity and the things that sci-fi does well. And these are both stories about inhumanity. It's both stories about humans going out to seek resources for their own benefit and how they impact the environment and um, the individuals who are living in those areas. It's about seeing other cultures as being less than you. A lot of the ideas that are raised in um, other films like, um, oh, what's that film I'm thinking of? Um, 
what's that film I'm thinking of, Conrad? Wally. <laughs> well, no, there's yeah. Wally. Um, the Kevin Costner. Oh, Dances with Wolves. Dances with the Wolves, exactly. Yeah. So um, there's there's a lot of parallels here. I um, will call her two socks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so which way are you leaning on this debate? Oh, I, I don't. For me, there's not really much of a debate. I'm going with the apes. Just flat out, you're going with the apes? Yep. Okay, defend yourself. Why? Um. Well, it's a little bit about what we were discussing earlier about what made the original Planet of the Apes do so well and was so successful as opposed to the Tim Burton remake, Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's because within both the human camps and the ape camps in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, um, you there are a lot of shades of gray. There's no no species that's doing everything right. Um, and there's a lot of similarities, especially on the on both positive and negative sides. So both species are looking to survive. And there are reasons why they're doing why why they try to um, rationalize why they do evil things or bad things or what could be construed as bad things. But ultimately, they're both kind of coming out in the same place. Um, and I think that that provides far more interesting um, commentary and debate than the Avatar scenario, where you basically have this idealized native population that's very spiritual, and then they have to deal with the dirty humans. Well, and one of my, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, of Avatar. I think the film is a technological achievement, and I think the story is a bit basic. Um, <laughs> it's not just basic. It's just, it's just so shallow and stereotypical. Well, and one of my real complaints here um, that's relevant for apes versus Navi, um, while they're really interesting species and the idea of kind of jacking into the planet um, and jacking into other animals using your tail and the interface there, that's real. That is interesting. And it's visually very interesting, too. Um, However, this this trope of the Navi needing a human to lead them. Well, that's what I was about to say. And that's the same yeah. The same with Dances with Wolves. It's the same with Dances with Wolves. It's the same with The Last Samurai. It's this idea that this, uh, this other is what's needed to help these native people overcome their conflict. It's, uh, it's offensive. Um, it's uh, kind of a bit of washing of history here. Um, and, and Avatar plays into that same idea. So for, for that, I, I don't think there's as much interesting social commentary. I think that the thing that sets apes apart from Navi in terms of social commentary is, I think you said it in your example of going to the zoo. Um, we we look at apes and we see something very close to us. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, um, you know, a evolutionary relative of ours. We, if you go back and far enough, we share some ancestor, um, and that helps me to have empathy for the apes. And I I think it provides uh, for more of an interesting social commentary when you really empathize with this other. And that's what 
X-Men does well again. Um, it's also what Star Trek does well. Yeah, we know that the makeup is pretty cheap with some of the aliens and it's just like like a, a Bajoran. There's mm-hmm. a, the nose is wrinkled a little bit as like our favorite Rolaren. And, um, and, you know, they wear really cool ear jewelry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so alien. Um, but that does allow you to have empathy. And um, I think apes, you, you just you feel for them more. And um, what's cool, I know we're talking Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, but if you go back to Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the whole Golden Gate scene, you're rooting for the apes. You're not rooting for the humans. There, There's a bit of an achievement there, not only technologically with us believing that those are apes, but also in terms of us um, believing them as characters. And with the Na'vi, it's a little over the top. They're a very colorful. It, they look very humanoid. Um, but they're blue and they have this, (laughs) they're big. They have this ability to kind of jack into the planet, um, and hack into it. So it's, it's a little bit less, um, empathetic. Um, Well, and part of me is sort of like, well, there's like kind of these giant warriors. How did they let the humans get the upper hand? It just makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense to me. So that's, there's that too. I also think that, that with the apes, the interesting things, there's one point where one of the characters, one of the human characters says, you know, they don't even need, um, they don't need lights. They don't need power. They're fine yeah. on their own. So yeah. who's really the superior species here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you even, even when the humans are, are seeking out the power station, part of me is thinking, you guys are on the West Coast. I know that there's a lot of solar power in California. <laughs> I don't know that I believe that you really need this power station. But there's also part of me that's like, you know, if they get it started up, then are, are they going to cause more damage than they already have? And you're kind of you you again, you find yourself being conflicted because you're you're not even conflicted. You're just siding with the apes. Yeah. And when um, so you compare that to avatar where there's this whole scene of exposition where the guy's like hey you see this this thing's called unobtainium unobtainium or something this is why we're here this is fuel for us blah 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 this and that yada yada um the the commentary um of avatar is pretty shallow and it maps pretty clearly onto, you know, any imperial war where one nation is trying to get resources from from another. Um, I think for apes, there's a little again. What makes apes so successful is it, it lives in the grays. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a black and white series. So I think this might be a pretty short crossover. Um, I know last week's was pretty short too with Orphan <laughs> Black and Dollhouse. That's okay because you know we did have the longest intro ever. That's true. That's true. So we can, we can wrap, um, we can wrap up this. I, I, I'm, I'm assuming you you vote apes. I vote oh, apes. I'm We're voting. Good. I'm totally voting apes. Okay. Well, in that case, get your damn dirty paws off me, you damn Navi, and we'll close <laughs> up this infinite crossover chamber. Pew uh, pew 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 pew. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm so enthusiastic about that one, Conrad, as you can tell. That's good. So, so uh, let's head into our top five. Um, we're talking top five post-human stories. So um, how did you make up your list and how did you define post-humanism? Uh, you know, this is a tough one because 
I guess I defined it as a, a point where human civilization isn't the main civilization of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what? This can cover or like human civilization as we know it is gone. So um, whether that's because um, the earth has been destroyed or um, or the human population has been wiped out on earth for some reason, like the world as we know it is not there. So I yep. took a, I took a pretty broad brush to this. As did I. Um, I looked for stories that explored um, either what would happen if we moved beyond the human form as we know it, if we augmented humanity, um, life after humans, life after the planet. Uh, and I tried to capture some of my favorites from each of those ideas. Um, one of my choices a little bit more wibbly wobbly, but I think I've got a good defense for it. Um, and we should say that there's there's a ton of stuff in this whole genre, um, and I, I try to steer away from some of the stuff I talked about in the past. So yeah, I, I left off uh, Blade Runner. Yep. Um, there's a few others that I I left off Battlestar because we've talked a bit about that. Same um, here. But, I, I but honestly, those Battlestar would probably be my number one. And Blade Runner would be up there. I left off Ghost in the Shell. That's one of my favorites. That would be up there. So, yeah, I try to highlight a few different stuff. So um, with that, um, what's your uh, uh, number five? Uh, My number five is one that actually appeared in one of my honorable mentions at one point. Um, It is Dark City. Oh, do tell me more. Well, so Dark City is this um, it is this weird film. And, um, it's, it is sort of like, um, it has a bit of a, a, like a a puzzle. So you, you open up and it's this, um, character, John Murdoch, and he has no memory, but it seems as if he might be a serial killer. Um, and it's him trying to figure that out. And at first you think that it's like this kind of weird like it, it definitely spins things in a different way, uh, because you think at first it's like this murder mystery. Um, and John Murdoch, by the way, is pa- played by Rufus uh, Sewell, mm-hmm. or Sewell, um, and his uh, wife is played by Jennifer Connelly. And he starts to try to figure this out, and suddenly there are these weird bald-headed aliens that are in like dead bodies. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to give away too much, but you basically find out that this is a zoo, <laughs> pretty yeah. much, um, and that they, they, you know, um, it, it, there's some some issues related to that and how they interact with the aliens and things like that. And um, it's super interesting looking. It's I think it's a very it's, it's a very visually it's it's very beautiful. It's got it, that film noir kind of look. It does. It's a very underrated film in my opinion. Um, yeah. And it came out a very long time ago. I know we talked about this it, during our Matrix discussion because I saw yeah. a lot of similarities there. So this was like and it came 98. out before Matrix. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's it's one of those things where you're really questioning what it means to be human. Yeah. And what what it means to be human, like a specific human, like what makes up a personality, what makes up your interactions with other human beings. And I feel like it evokes a lot of really interesting questions about human relations and memories and things like that. 
So it's it's a good pick. I, I like that one. It's one of my favorite um, sci-fi films from the '90s. Um, it's interesting. A lot of the films in that era explored ideas of consciousness and what it mm-hmm. means to uh, sort of the mind-body type of connection. And, and Dark City is uh, one of the best examples of that. Um, my number five is um, a thought experiment. <laughs> it is by Alan Weissman, and it is The World Without Us. So this was a 2007 um, book that came out. It's uh, not, you know, it's not a fiction story. But what it is, is um, it's a cool book that explores what would happen if humans basically disappeared tomorrow. And what would happen to the planet? And what would happen to the different cities and the different areas of the planets? Wait, um, did we talk about this? The in the world without humans thing? We, you talked about that as a documentary, I believe. Was that on our Cosmos episode? It's not really a documentary. Um, It's, um, it's, it was on the National Geographic channel. Yeah, we talked about that on our Cosmos. Yeah, and they, they, um, I think they must have based it on this book that you're talking about. Perhaps this and was. And so they do all these visuals, the visuals of the earth and buildings, like how they crumble under normal, you know, just like nature kind of takes over and things, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The return of animals. And, um, you know, I, I think some of the most interesting ideas about this book are um, what would be, what would really last? Would the last sign of humanity be our radioactive waste? Would it be a plastic bottle? Would it be these things that don't decompose? And that's kind of all that would be left of us. And I think these are interesting ideas about what what we leave behind as a species. Um, someone just like gave away this book to me when I was in grad school and I ended up reading it more than the work I was supposed to be doing. So it definitely was something that captured my attention and it gets – at that idea of post-humanism in terms of what would happen to the earth, post, what would happen to the earth post-humans. So that's my number five. Cool. All right, um, number four. What do you got, Conrad? Um, my number four is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely a post-human world and. Rather a new post-human world, but um, it, and obviously Hitchhiker's Guide is humorous, but there's a lot of commentary if you look for it. Um, very ton-in-cheek commentary about human behavior and and where we think what we think of ourselves and sort of the frivolity of of the the ways that humans are done in a very Monty Python x uh, sorry Monty Python esque kind of way. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's it's a great book. Obviously, one of my favorites since I've mentioned it a couple of times. I suspect, but it's one of your favorite books, but not one of your favorite movies. Correct. Yeah. Um, but I think that even with the humor, there's some really interesting comments about us that come through, <laughs> um, and done it, in a humorous way, which is also a feat. You know, so so I I have to I had to have it on the list. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's a good pick. Uh, my number four is a film um, I've mentioned in the past. It's uh, Gattaca, 1997's mm. film about genetic engineering. Um, here's why I think it does belong on this list of uh, post-human 
stories. Um, it's really a story about what happens to society once we do engage in um, sort of the designer genetic engineering. How tall do you want your child to be? What color eyes? What specialty do you want them to, to go into? And the class issues that would emerge when you have a, a, a class of people who can afford to genetically alter their um, um, their or not genetically alter, but genetically refine their their children um, versus a class of people who can't afford to do that. Um, it's a it's a great story. It's again one of my favorites from the 1990s. Um, I don't think a lot of people have seen it, and if you I've haven't, seen it. I've seen it. I thought it was good. Well, you're a big nerd, Conrad. Of course, you've seen it. I, know. <laughs> I think a lot of people I run into and talk to haven't seen Gattaca, and it's. Uh, uh, it's it's just one of my one of my favorites. So it also has a film noir kind of style similar to Dark City. Um, so uh, do check it out. Um, I've been putting you in the hot seat, so I'll go first for number three. Um, number three is my wibbly wobbly pick a little bit. Um, and uh, I'm cheating a little bit because I'm combining two different episodes of Star Trek. Now. Uh, when it comes to post-humanism, there's lots of different directions um, you can go in Star Trek. And there's some obvious picks like uh, Khan um, and Space Seed and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I'm not going with that. You can also go with Data and the ideas of androids and all of that. Not going with that either. What I am going with is um, Season 2 and Season 6 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, Elementary Dear Data and Ship in a Bottle. Now, um, the reason I went with these episodes, these episodes we briefly talked about in our Sherlock episode, um, these episodes feature a Moriarty, and they feature a Mr. Data who's playing the character of Sherlock in the holodeck. And uh, things go awry when uh, we realize that Moriarty, this um, computer program, has become sentient and self-aware. It's sort of that Skynet moment (laughs) where um, uh, Moriarty has gained uh, consciousness and realizes that he is a program in the ship's computer running on the holodeck. And he's able to reactivate himself and he begins to learn and begins to pose a threat to the Enterprise. Now, I won't spoil what happens in the follow-up episode in Star Trek Next Generation Season 6, but it explores these ideas of what, what would happen if you could download your consciousness into a computer program and run as software in this simulation. Would your reality be any different from the reality we experience as in our corporeal form? If not, then what does it mean to live? And what does it mean to be human? And I think it gets at a lot of those really metaphysical, uh, confusing areas of of post-humanism. So I I love these two episodes, and I think they dive into some really meaty content. Cool. I I was waiting for your Star Trek to appear. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, As do most people in my life. (laughs) I think I've heard that. And uh, and in kind, you are often waiting for my zombie to appear. <laughs> uh, no, and in this and in this case, I am picking. Um, it isn't a zombie, although this was portrayed and did have a huge influence on the genre as we know today. But I am picking. I am Legend by Richard Matheson. 
um, as my number three. So I have seen the film. I have not read the book. I have also seen the uh, Charlton, Charlton Heston Omega Man, which yes. is kind of based on this. Uh, but- the idea, it's, you know, the last man kind of idea. Um, but the reason why I picked this is because um, in the book, it's actually vampires. Um, but it, it was the whole idea of the world being wiped out by by war. So it was a commentary on war. And then the idea of what is basically a zombie apocalypse apocalypse but it's like a vampire apocalypse spread by germs so so mm-hmm. some sort of a contagion film and because of this story um we got uh night of the living dead <laughs> so really yeah it was um basically they changed um romero changed the the assailants or the main you know the the beasties in his film to zombies because he didn't want to get called out for the fact that he was boring heavily from this story. Mm. Um, but it, you know, but and in and with that we have the whole idea of a zombie apocalypse. So, so that's why it's on my list. But it also has a lot of commentary in terms of like what would happen if you were the last person and what would you do and yeah, um, you know, it's boy is that a scary thought. Well, it's it's just a very lonely movie, and he kind of is going crazy because he's just, and he starts to try to befriend some of the the beasts because or one specific one just because he is just so lonely, um, and he kind of convinces himself that it's not um, it's not one of the beasts because they this this one can go out in the sun and things like that, but um, it's it's actually because the um, the vampires are evolving. You know, it kind of reminds you of uh, like a, a little bit of Doctor Who and these ideas of being the last Time Lord and mm-hmm. um, and, and some of the loneliness that, that comes up there. I think any of those stories where you're, you're really dealing with the last of your species, I think those are really interesting. And uh, I should check out the novel because I had mixed feelings about the Will Smith film. Uh, the novel has its own issues, but it's worth reading just because it influenced so many different things. Cool. Well, my number two is a book that influenced many different things. Um, 1895's classic H.G. Wells novel. Oh, that's a good one. The Time Machine. Mm. Um, Now, again... You know, H.G. Wells is just... It's pretty fascinating because if you look, especially at at the Sci-Fi Channel and all this other stuff, so many of the television shows and different things are based upon H.G. Wells stories. Yeah, and what's, what I really like about H.G. Wells is uh, we see this with um, A Trip to the Moon. We see this with The Time Machine. He was able to explore um, many of the issues of the day and the ideas that captured people's um, uh, attention and imagination. And uh, The Time Machine is definitely one of those. It's um, Again, I won't spoil it, but the premise is basically this: the main character does travel into the future and basically... Based upon um, the evolutionary trajectory of this leisure upper class and the working class, they have um, uh, developed into 
different species. Um, and the book kind of goes from there about what happens once uh, you are in this world where you have these two different um, species of humans. So I think it, um, like Planet of the Apes, explores ideas of class, um, of social class and um, socioeconomics and all of that kind of stuff. And it does it in a really interesting way. And it did it before <laughs> almost everything that we talk about in in, in this show. So um, – Thank you, uh, Mr. H.G. Wells, for that. Cool. You're number two, Conrad. Uh, my number two is Dune. Why is Dune on your list? Um, because of the spice. Um, <laughs> because yeah. spice is life? Um, yes, spice is life. And more deep. Um, <laughs> no, this is an incredible universe. Have you read the books or are you talking about the movie? No, I okay. So I have um, I read the book. I got it on audiobook, which uh, I tried reading it in paper, couldn't get through it. I got the audiobook that got me through it. I have yet to make it through either of the uh, adaptations. What? I've gotten through, I, I made it through like half of the original, fell asleep, the one with Patrick Stewart, and then um, I tried watching the the series, the miniseries on a few years ago. Wasn't able to make it. Um, so yeah, I, I I haven't made it through the adaptions. <laughs> oh, Ollie, um, it's. But I do, I have I do encourage to the audiobook. You. Okay, okay, I'll 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 give it to you. Um, there, it's just an incredibly detailed universe. There is so much going on here in terms of um, science and and social commentary and it like. Just with different, different. Um, again, there's a resources issue um, within the series that we've seen um, as we talked in Avatar, and also the the Apes, Planet of the Apes series. Um, and there's a lot of commentary just about, um, you know, like the idea of what humans are doing or what these main characters are doing in order to to mine this precious resource on the yeah. planet. Um, and I don't want to get into to too much because like, honestly, this is a huge franchise and you could really spend forever talking about it. Yep. yep. Um, just about the books, not to mention the film. And there's like, also was a television ap- adaptation too. Um, but it's, I don't know. It was always one of my favorite book series. Um, and. Well, it gets into some of these ideas of, of evolution as well, as well as kind of augmenting humanity using spice. Well, uh, and technology and, and sort of some of the pitfalls of that as well. Um, yeah. you know, um, but it's, I don't know. And I, and I admit Kyle McLaughlin in the movie. Awesome. <laughs> Plus it has sting. Come on. Yeah, yeah I know. Uh, it's very eighties. Um, so, um, Dune's my number one pick. Um, Wait, it was really? Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. Oh, we and missed a mind meld. We well, we got a sort of one. Now, um, sort th- of. <laughs> that's lame. <laughs> so the reason why I put Dune as number one is it is a very 
uh, influential uh, book in science fiction. Many have compared Dune is to science fiction as Lord of the Rings is to fantasy. And for whatever reason, it hasn't captured the public consciousness as much as Lord of the Rings. But, um, you know, I think people should revisit it. It's, It's tough to get through the beginning, but if you can sort of slog through the first few chapters, I think it does it is, pick up. It is a tough beginning. I, I had many failed attempts at reading it. I, I have had only failed attempts at watching it, um, but I, I kind of had to get through it. My friends, uh, my buddies, Matt and Lowen, both kept giving me a hard time throughout grad school for not finishing and not having read Dune because they were constantly quoting it left and right. Yeah, but you know what? I will tell you, even for me, and as you know... <laughs> In terms of my reading, like you are I, the, the devourer. Of I books. am the devourer of books, the and and this was for me a challenge. Yeah, when I first started it, once I got, you know, it was really the first book, and once I got through like that first beginning, then it wasn't a problem at all. But it yep. was definitely it was a tough start. Yeah, but it it, it belongs to number one. Um, uh, there's it's it's a really important work of science fiction and it gets a lot of a lot of the ideas of what might happen you know in the far future with humanity and how we might um how we might change so um that leaves us with your number one um my number one is anvil of stars by greg bear heard of it have not read it um and quite honestly i could have picked so many different books by greg bear because this is a theme that he explores quite a bit. Um, Eon is another book that he wrote that that I think could have belonged very easily in this slot. Um, but Anvil of Stars is... Um, there are two books in this particular storyline. One is Forge of God, which is the first book, and the other is Anvil of Stars. Anvil of Stars came out in 1992, and Bill was actually the person that recommended it to me, which is incredible since Bill never reads fiction. <laughs> um, it is one of the only fiction books that he owns and has and loves. And he gave me a copy of it and I read it. And it's, it's this book about, um, about revenge and morality. And I, you know, it's, it definitely has some, um, some similarities to Ender's Game in some of the things it explores. Um, But basically the earth has been destroyed and sort of the, the survivors of earth or the children of the survivors of earth are sent away um, and helped by some alien species to basically take revenge. And there's a lot of questions along the way about why they're doing this and how they're doing this and what are the motives of the people or the species that are helping them because they don't really understand why, you know, they're basically all their lives are, are spent training for this moment mm. um, to find and get rid of the people that killed their planet or the, the beings that killed their planet. Um, and there is a lot of, um, a lot of struggles with, with the main characters and what they're supposed to be doing um, and why. And, 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 you know, it's um, it, there's a lot of question about whether the people or the beings that they're destroying are innocent and whether they knew what they were doing. And um, 
It's very well written. The aliens are very well written. I highly recommend it to everybody. Well, Greg Bear is all over um, an article on uh, post-human science fiction at io9. So he's definitely a uh, um, beloved author in this area. And uh, it seems like Anvil of Stars is his... uh, uh, his best work in this. So definitely something I need to add to my reading list and add to my never ending queue. Uh, the never ending queue. It's so long. It's so long. It's so long. Uh, um, so. Oh, and I should mention like one of the coolest parts of this, this book were these, um, these, they're these aliens and they're called, they're each individual chords that come together to make up braids and the braids are sort of like one being and then they can like fall apart and become separate. (laughs) And it's like this, there's some really cool um, descriptions like, and they, they give off different smells, the different braids, like depending on how they're feeling. So it's, it's kind of like, it's just a very, it's a very interesting book. So, um, and plus, you know, I figured that I should throw some Greg Bear in there since he was one of the founders of Comic-Con and you're, and you're going to go next week. Yeah, 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 totally. And kind of sounds a little bit like Thundercats or some of those, uh, mech shows with these like different things that are able to come together and all of that sort of stuff. Um, Cool, cool. I've got just a few honorable mentions I'm going to throw out. Um, Neuromancer. Oh, uh, yeah. I was thinking that too, but I had mentioned that before. So I didn't I, that's that. why it's honorable mention. Yep. Um, Diaspora by Greg Egan. Uh, Mary, Shelley, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I'm f- surprised that didn't make your list, Conrad. Eh, well, we were thinking post-human. Okay. All right, but I, I think there's a, some augmentation happening there. Um, and then um, I put Caprica um, on this list. I, I think the show, it doesn't really work, but it gets at some interesting ideas of, of consciousness and, and all of that. So that was uh, my honorable mention. Uh, do you have any? Well, I mean, there's Terminator and there is Matrix. Um, and I also, you know, part I didn't know quite how to put this into our top five. But within uh, the outer limits, there's a few stories by um, by um, uh, Harlan. Um, why am I not coming up with his name? By George R. R. Martin? No, no, no. <laughs> um, Harlan Ellison. Sorry, uh, of course, yeah. Harlan Ellison. Um, that um, you know, they they actually give him credit in Terminator um there one of his stories I think is called Soldier um and they it's obviously influenced Terminator um and he wrote an he wrote a couple of other ones um there's a demon with a glass hand um which is these are the kinds of things that would freak me out as a child but then I would like think about them forever yeah so so those kinds of things and same with the Twilight Zone episodes they often explore this kind of theme yeah. Um, and I don't know, have you, have you rewatched any of the Twilight Zone? Absolutely. And they still captivate me. They do. They, do marathons. It, they really hold up. Um, and yeah. there's actually, they're on Netflix, I think, and Amazon. Every so. episode. Absolutely. So I highly recommend those. Um, you know, we should do a Twilight Zone, uh, revisited episode on Nerd Hour at some point. I think that would be really fun. Um, 
And then my last um, honorable mention is a book by, um, by uh, I don't know if you, I've ever mentioned this to you. Um, it's by John Scalzi. It's called Old Man's War. Hmm. Um, and the idea is that um, the humans, um, when they are going to, they hit like a certain age and then they sign up to become soldiers in like, out in the the wide world in the galaxy because humans have to basically hold on to their territory mm-hmm. and so they get augmented into these different bodies so oh, they switch their consciousness into these like different bodies and it's basically like they're conscripted to do this for 10 years before and as long as they don't die and there's a very good chance they'll die um it feels a little bit like starship troopers yeah, it sounds a little um, bit like it, but it's it's a very entertaining book, and it's I think there's there's now um, there's there are two other books in the series, um, but this is the, I think this is the best one. Um, cool, and it's option it was option for a movie, but who knows when that will come out. So, <laughs> well, uh, that was our top five post-human stories. Uh, dear listeners, please let us know what's on your list. Let us know um, what you thought of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, what you think of the franchise, and let us know how much more awesome apes are than, than the Navi. Uh, so next week, I want to put a little shout out here. We will be, um, we're going to have an episode coming out early next week. Episode after that is a Comic-Con episode. That's going to be a little bit delayed. Um, and I will be at Comic-Con next week on Thursday. I'm on a panel called the Psychology of T- Cult TV Shows. We're going to be diving into a lot of the topics that we typically explore here on Nerd Hour including Doctor Who, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and a bunch of other cool stuff. Um, So please come to that. That'll be on Thursday, July 24th at 8 p.m. And then on Saturday is the epic episode four of the psychology of Star Trek versus Star Wars panel um, done with my friend, uh, Dr. Adria Ledimenti. I can reveal now that our guests include Rod Roddenberry, um, son of Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, um, the producer of Trek Nation and um, president, I believe, of Roddenberry Entertainment. And we've also got Sam Witwer, who is from Star Wars, The Clone Wars, Being Human, as well as Battlestar Galactica. So please do come and attend that Saturday, July 26th. And we'll be talking about that stuff in a few weeks um, on Nerd Hour. So Conrad... Where can people find you on the internet this week? Uh, this week they can find me on Twitter. I'm at Prince, and on my zombie podcast, Reanimated, which is uh, reanimatedpodcast.com. And on Twitter, we're reanimatedpcast. Wouldn't it be funny if one of these days we're like, well, this week you won't be able to find me on Twitter. I'm just like taking a vacation from it. Well, uh, <laughs> I need to be actually better about being on Twitter. I'm I'm a I'm a very lazy Twitter user. So <laughs> you're a very you're I'm a, a lazy Twitterer. 
<laughs> you're kind of moving at an impulse when other people might be moving at warp speed. Nothing you, wrong you, with that. You are definitely moving at warp speed. Uh, trust me, sometimes it's just a welcome distraction from the work of the day. Um, speaking of Twitter, you can find me at Olimatu on Twitter. And as always, I am the science fiction psychologist at BrainKnowsBetter.com. And next week, please come say hi at San Diego Comic Con. Uh, until next time, watch out for those damn dirty apes and live long and prosper. Indeed. <laughs>